Good morning, Highland. I need to confess to you before we began, I may have overdone it a little bit in the worship. So if my voice gives out, it's just because we've been praising God too loud today, which I think is an all right thing to happen. Uh, my name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here at Highland, and I'm grateful that you're here. As Ashley said, whether you've been a part of us for a long time or this is your first Sunday to come into a church, uh, it is good to have you here. Now, I grew up in a tradition in the Church of Christ that didn't pay much attention to Easter Sunday. Um, as far as I knew growing up, uh, you couldn't tell the difference between Easter and any other Sunday because we said we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday, which is true. But I think the reason that my church did that is because they never experienced Lent. Now, if this is your first Sunday, you haven't experienced the journey that we've been going through together over the last 40 days. We've had a sermon series talking about feast and fast, and we looked at the stories of Jesus, like at the wedding of Cana, where he makes more wine than could possibly be drank, and also when he feeds the 5,000 in the wilderness, more food than anybody could possibly eat. But we also looked at those fasts. When Jesus went alone to the wilderness, and did not eat for 40 days to prepare for the temptation. When Jesus gave his instruction on the Sermon on the Mount of what does it mean to fast? What does it mean to, to give up so that you can gain something more? And the truth that we've learned over the past 40 days is that the abundance of God is not dependent on our circumstances. There may be food on the table, there may be more than you could possibly eat, and you have experienced the abundance of God. You may have nothing but meager with what's left. You still have the abundance of God, because the abundance of God is not found in our circumstance, but is found in Jesus Christ. And so we've been engaging in spiritual practices to remind us of these truths. And for us, coming here on this Sunday and experiencing the feast that I hope that you got to eat We've experienced the abundance of Jesus in our midst. So I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're a part of what we're doing today, and I hope today is, is special. Will you pray as we jump into the Word today? Heavenly Father, for the good of your kingdom, we commit our lives. We commit our hearts. We commit every ounce of our strength and our will. Father, we give you praise that the tomb is not empty, that there is more to the story than what we knew, and that because of your good and great love, we have a hope and a future that we could not imagine. And now, Father, as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people, and it's together that the church said, amen. Highland Church, we believe. We believe early that Sunday morning, just before the break of day, as women prepared spices to anoint our Lord, while guards stood half asleep in weary pose, scratching and muttering, while disciples hid in back rooms and cellars, fearing the worst, while Judas swayed in the dawn breeze as Pilate and the Sanhedrin slept peacefully, believing the matter was settled. We believe. Highland, we believe early that Sunday morning, God began something new. Because of the willing obedience of the Son to lay down his life, God anointed him king. And a world muttering for redemption of Eden drew, uh, drew its breath and awoke with a mighty shake. 
and fearful and hesitant disciples were transformed into bold and capable evangelists and prophets, carrying the good news of God's great love wherever their feet took them. Because Jesus was anointed king, the rulers and powers of this world now shake and tremble and recalculate their odds. Because Jesus is king, we share in the hope that death has no sting, that grave has no victory. And rather, we will see them again. John will see Evelyn again. Gordon, Keith, and Kirk will see Dorothy again. Pat, you will see Kathleen again. And I will see my father. And I will see my sister again. We believe because God made Jesus king, we have all been sent an invitation to the greatest party, the most stupendous feast that will ever be held, a wedding banquet at the end of time. The RSP has your name on it. It will be a wedding banquet. It will be a homecoming. It will be a victory feast. Do you remember your first victory feast? I remember mine clearly. I was in the third grade. I'd been playing rec league soccer for some time with my Washington Park Eagles. Now I have to let you know that uh, this was the first year that we were allowed into the playoffs. I think we won one game before we were eliminated. We got trophies, but more importantly, we got to go to Chuck E. Cheese. (laughs) And so it was on that lunch on that Saturday afternoon that I went for probably the second time in my life to the most amazing place for a third grade boy. I want to tell you, I want to confess that I was, had no part in the victory that we experienced. <laughs> Rec League soccer in Denver at the time required that every student that wants to play gets to play two uh, quarters no matter what. Required. For my entire time playing Rec League soccer, I only played two quarters every game no matter what. Except for one time. One time, only 11 kids showed up. Takes 11 on the team. I got to play three quarters. I don't even know what they did that last quarter. I think they just played with 10 people. I never scored a goal. I had no part in the victory. But I was invited to the feast. And it's a moment that I will not forget because I walked into Chuck E. Cheese and my teammates, still in their uniforms and shin guards and cleats, cheered as I came in the door. What was your first victory feast? Or maybe it's your first homecoming feast. The first homecoming, the best homecoming feast in all of cinema is from the movie Antoine Fisher. Antoine Fisher is based on a true story. It's a story of a a young man who grew up abused in a terrible environment in a terrible home. But he makes his way and he kind of escapes all of that and joins the military. But all of those things that he carried with him stay with him in this place. And he ends up in a disciplinary review because of some bad choices. And he's signed a counselor, and that counselor begins to unpack the history of this young man's life. And you see, as you watch the movie, all of the terrible things that he suffered. Born to a single mother who was uh, addicted to more than one substance. And he grew up in an abusive, physically, emotionally, verbally violent situation. His neighborhood did nothing to help him. 
But this counselor leads Antoine by the hand to take him through those processes. And he begins healing. And he, he begins to come to the moment where he needs to come back and make reconciliation with his mother. It's supposed to be the, the, the climax of the movie because he's going to come back and confront and be made, made peace. And everything's going to be made right. And he shows up at the door and it goes completely wrong. His mother is still a wreck. She has no words of repentance or forgiveness. And Antoine is left adrift. But then someone in the neighborhood comes up to him and says, well, what about your dad's side of the family? Antoine Fisher had never known his father, nor any of that side of the family. And there's a twinkle in that neighbor's eyes. And he says, Antoine, you have no idea. And the last scene of this movie is the best homecoming feast you could possibly imagine. Antoine Fisher, who has been alone and abused, suffering for his entire life, is welcomed into a home. And he meets his cousins and his aunts and uncles. He meets his sisters and his nephews and nieces. He meets his great uncles and his great aunt. And the, the final moment of the movie is when he meets his grandmother and she says, welcome home. What was your homecoming feast? I grew up in the Midwest, and so the value of a casserole was usually uh, merited by the thickness of the cheese on the top. If you had about a half inch of cheese, it was a good casserole. It was not the most healthy thing to eat, but it was my favorite. My favorite was um, Spanish chicken that my mom made. I don't know where she got this recipe or she made it up herself. It was basically tortillas torn into pieces with chicken and then like cream of mushroom soup dumped on top with an inch of cheese. Whenever I went home, that would be the one thing that I'd ask for. And as I would travel from Abilene up to Denver, Colorado, there was this this one pass that you would come over. And as you went over, I, in first service, the word pass just like slipped out of my memory. And I couldn't think of it. It was like, it wasn't summit. It was like a hill over the top. I think it's because I've lived in Abilene for three years and I haven't seen a pass in a long time. <laughs> I've seen an overpass, but it's not quite the same thing. So um, you go over this pass and all of a sudden you can see the lights of Denver from Aurora to Lakewood all the way across. And I know that I'm 20 minutes from home. And as I pull up to the front door and I walk out and I come into my parents' house, I smell Spanish chicken. It's a homecoming feast like you couldn't possibly imagine. And for us on some level, what we experience today, what we experience right now, is a foretaste of heaven. It's a foretaste of that heavenly banquet. It's kind of like that old Church of Christ joke that, you know, there's a young boy that wants to understand about heaven, and so he comes to the preacher and he says, what's heaven like? And the preacher's trying to explain it to him, and he says, well, you know, we're going to spend a lot of time singing there, and we're going to spend a lot of time praying there, and we're going to be in the presence of God. It's going to be a lot like church on Sunday morning. And that boy's face just moves to terror and disappointment. <laughs> in this auditorium right now, there are many tribes. There are many 
political tribes. There's many people from many different nations. There are many different heart languages. The language that you pray isn't English, it's something else. There are many different voices in this place. And Revelation 7 takes us to the place where all those voices and all those peoples and all those places are gathered together to worship God in one voice. Our worship is a foretaste of the unity of heaven. You can't read through Revelation and not be struck by the number of songs. Heaven is a noisy place. They're always singing there. Our baptism is the experience of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you enter the water and you meet Christ there, you experience the foretaste of heaven. Our communion that we just shared together, the feast that we just shared before that, is a foretaste of the heavenly banquet that we will experience when our Lord comes back. Revelation in general is a tricky book to read. It's where our text is today. We're in Revelation chapter 19. They're writing to a group of churches that have suffering a crisis of faith and identity. In some places, the persecution is so intense um, that it's causing people to fall away. In other places, it's, it's a meandering loss of attention that's making them struggle. In others, it's the seduction to a, a vapid banality of consumer culture that's pulling them away from their first love. And Revelation speaks in symbols and riddles. Nearly every verse in the book of Revelation is, has a reference to the Old Testament in it. Revelation speaks of hidden things. Because what it looks like is you're being persecuted. What it looks like is that you're being seduced into something that is way more meaningless than you thought it was. You've been sold a bill of goods and it's all proven bankrupt. What it looks like is you're wondering if what is true really matters. But if we could pull back the curtain and we could see there's a cosmic struggle happening. There's a cosmic battle between the powers of good and evil, between God and the forces that are trying to misalign God's people. One of the things we see in this book is that aligning with secular power never delivers the empty promises it holds. Revelation is full of song. It's full of worship. The elders, the seraphim, the cherubim, the myriads of believers, the martyrs, they can't stop praising God. And then we come across these curious characters that show up in this book. Remember, it's all symbols of other things. There's the two beasts, one that represents the oppressive power of Rome, the power that can crucify individuals at a moment's notice. The other, the seductive power of Babylon, which entices people in, which Babylon is also Rome, but it's more than Rome. It's every government. And our text in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 6, it's a song that they sing. Hallelujah, for the Lord God reigns. The Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with white linen, bright and pure. And there is a feast, a wedding feast, for the Lamb and his bride. There's actually two feasts in Revelation 19. One for the wedding, but the other is for the birds. 
Because the promise of Revelation is that evil will be defeated. Jesus will be victorious. The most compelling image in the entire book is is the image of a slain lamb who has been made king. And it's obviously who Jesus is. Jesus was the sacrifice, the atonement for sins. But because of his willingness to die, God makes him king. But unlike, unlike Palm Sunday where Jesus comes riding in on a donkey... A symbol not of violence, but a symbol of peace. Christ in Revelation rides the white horse. And the sword that he carries is not in his hand. The sword that he carries is in his mouth because his weapon is not violence. It still remains that way. His weapon is truth. That Jesus has become king. Not of Israel. Not of Rome. But of the cosmos. Of everything. And Jesus offers a wedding feast where the church is the bride and welcomes us home. I have a friend, David, who's the the rector over at Heavenly Rest. And it's one of those seasons that sometimes you're in when you're in a church where you just have a lot of funerals. I think he's had 12 funerals in the past 11 weeks. And we were talking one day. I love to get together and talk with him because so much in ministry is the same, but there's some peculiarities in the different flavors of, of our churches. And he was telling me the best part for him of, of doing the funeral is that moment at the graveside. It's the last line that he speaks before the body is interred. The last word is, Alleluia. All of us go down to the dust, David. He quoted it from memory with joy in his face. All of us go down to the dust, yet even at the grave we make our song, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Hallelujah is just translated, praise the Lord. But the only place that it shows up in the New Testament is Revelation 19 in this text. Praise the Lord. The only place that Alleluia shows up in the Psalms is in those last four. It's the coda at the end of of the Jewish prayer book to God. Psalm 150, it appears several times. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty firmament. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His surprising greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipes. Praise Him with clanging cymbals. Praise Him with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And our last words. And they're not going to be the last words. But may our last words be Alleluia. 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 I want to invite the prayer team and the worship team to come back up. Um, If you're new to this place, our prayer team is a group of people that want to be available for prayer. At the end of the service, you can come forward during the song that's about to come. You can come forward and pray with them or talk with them. If your heart's troubled, if there's something you need, they want to be available for you. And if that conversation can't be finished in the course of the time after this service, then they're going to have a cup of coffee with you and continue that conversation. These are people that care about you and shepherding you through a hard time. But I also want to cast the vision of what our mission here, our vision is for here at this church. 
As Ashley said, our hospitality isn't just contained into these walls. It's not just contained in the feast that we offer, but we want to carry that with us wherever we go. And, and that's why we went to Cooper to cheer on those kids playing baseball, playing as hard as their hearts absolutely could. Because we want to be a place of hospitality, not just for one another, but for a city. We want to be a place of hope and good news, not just for us, but for our world. And so this week, the homework is pretty clear. Carry the hope of Easter. Carry the promise that your life has never been the same. Even carry one of these plants. Like, you can come up and take one of these, right, Jeff? The lilies. Take, don't take the other ones. Take the lilies. Take it home with you and give it to somebody. Carry it as a symbol of hospitality that you can share with somebody else. I don't want to see any lilies on this platform after this moment. Take it with you as an excuse. Take it to a shut-in. Take it to somebody that's having a hard uh, season. Take it to somebody that couldn't be here this morning. Carry with you the hospitality of Christ. Carry with you the blessing. Share the blessing that you've received to the world. And may your last word be Alleluia. 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 Thanks be to God.